Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. On today's episode, we're diving deep on the decisions in Steffenfeld's most recent hit game, Bonfire. We'll talk about complexity, find the path about what may <laughs> find, <laughs> find the path games. I'm going to yep. try again. I, <laughs> okay. I don't understand what that means. Find the path games. Yep. The path games. Find the path versus follow the path. We'll talk about it. On today's episode, we're diving deep on the decisions in Steffenfeld's most recent hit game, Bonfire. We'll talk about complexity, find the path games, what makes Feld games feel like Feld games, and the top three things we enjoy most about Bonfire. I think Jake was trying to read in a really epic voice there, and then the little blurb I wrote totally threw him off. And it's it's find the path games. (laughs) Okay, we got to redo it. I don't understand what that means. So it's like find the path games versus follow the path games. So in Zelda, there's some dungeons that are find the path dungeons, right? Where you're like trying to determine what the path is. And then there's other dungeons that are just follow the path dungeons. We're just following the path laid out for you. And I think that we're, I don't know. Um, But in some games, right? Like the Lost Ruins of Arnak feels a lot like a follow the path game. There's a really clear path set out before you. You're supposed to, whoever follows the path before you the best wins. In Feld games, it feels a little bit more like that idea of follow, find the path games where there's this really open space and you have to find the optimal path through them. I like that. That's smart. Let's just leave all this because great. I think that's a perfect explanation. I think this is our best episode intro ever. But in classic Feld fashion, we're going to have a really rough time onboarding and then the the ultimate experience is going to be amazing so just don't go, go anywhere it's gonna be a great episode of decision space where we return to Steffenfeld for the first time in months one of jake's favorite designers so that's I'm true really excited. absolutely one of my very favorite designers excited to talk about this game it's one i've played a lot um and yeah i think it'll be a great conversation is there anything else we should plug up front before we get right into our ratings and slogans for this game i think that's save the plugs for the back end and let's just jump right into bonfire what all right Let's do it. Let's jump right into Bonfire. All right, you go first while I think. Okay, here goes. Bonfire is an ornate, rules-indulgent, delicious shared puzzle. Like many Steffenfeld games, learning it can be a bear. However, once you've overcome the rules bear and the game's logic clicks for you, there's a fascinating and energetic, yes, a Feld game being energetic, decision space with excellent pacing to explore. Bonfire definitely isn't my favorite Feld Jake, but it's tough to not be charmed by a decision space that offers the player as much agency and strategic openness as one like this. So in the end, for me, Bonfire is a solid 8 out of 10. Dang, that's a good score. That's a that's a high score for Bonfire, and I think it's one that maybe if we had done this earlier on, you might not have said 8 out of 10. No, there were times, we'll get into this, but Bonfire has been a rough rough road for me, I think, in a lot of ways. But part of that's just because it's so different than a lot of games that we play. Yeah, a lot to unpack in your little blurb. I think for me, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, too. I think it's a Mm. game that I think is really good, you know, one that I like to play a lot. I don't think I would turn it down, and I think I would suggest it to others to play. Um, But I don't know right now that it rises into the elite top tier of Feld games. And and I think of those as Castles of Burgundy, Bruges, and Carpe Diem. That is like the holy 
triumvirate of Feld games for me. Um, and I think that this sits just below those games right now. And, and of course, I could change with more plays. There's an expansion coming out for it that I would I would give a shot and, and see see what that's like because Bruges is only a top tier Feld game with the expansion, in my opinion. So maybe this falls into that category as well. But yeah, I think it's very good, very fun, like classic Feld. Um, and and on top of it, you've got a really kind of psychedelic theme, and that's cool too. So that that's pretty much where I'm at. Do you like psychedelic themes in Feld? Then this is probably a game that you would enjoy a lot. This theme is so zany, Jake. I feel like this theme, the best themes in board games actively help you learn a game. And this theme is the exact opposite for me. It actively made this game more difficult to play and to learn. Because yeah. of the, the gnomes, the bonfire, there's multiple, there's so many different bonfires in this game. The gnomes are ridiculous. I don't even know what guardians are. It's just all over the place. Like it's a total Zane fest. It feels German. It feels like the most German Feld game. It's like a little storytelling, fairy tale. A couple of things you said there, I don't know, I agree with. I don't know what about this feels particularly German to I think me. It's like a, for me, it's like the fairy tale whimsy mixed with this sort of darkness. I guess I'm and, just thinking of Brothers Grimm. Yeah, brother. Are they German? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes some sense. I'm starting to kind of unlock the puzzle here of what <laughs> what the hell you're talking about. Um, That's I'm also just what decision sure. space is for you, right? Just unlocking yeah. the puzzle of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I think. I agree. I mean, I think it's nice when the theme helps people grok games. I don't think I would say that's like all the best theme or what themes are necessarily should be trying to accomplish at all times. Um, so Such a level-headed fair take. It's so <laughs> annoying. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Let's, let's, get into the, let's get into it. All right. So we're going to talk first about the background. So this is published by Hall Games in 2020. Um, and this is... Uh, Hall Games have also done some other Feld games before. One that I own and and really love is Aquasphere. That's kind of like another zany oddball one. So when I played this and I was like, this is a Hall Game Feld collaboration, mm. I was like, that makes perfect sense to me because in both cases, you have like what is at its core, like a super Euro-y Euro game. And then they're like, let's slap some fun theme on top. And yeah. kind of in the audience a bit that way. And I, I think it works, you know? I think that's like a successful marriage. Yeah, I think so too. And Hall Games and Steffenfeld have been working together for a while. It seems like Hall Games is a fairly, fairly small publisher. And a lot of the games in their t uh, catalog have been games that they've published with Feld. So there's also At the Gates of Loyang, which came out in 2009. A game that used to have more buzz. I don't hear people talk about it quite as much anymore. And then also The Oracle at Delphi. Delphi, which is another Feld collaboration with Hall Games that came out in 2016 that I would say there is still a lot of buzz about, mostly because when people are talking about Feld, they'll talk about how that's a really different Feld game. It's a race game. It's not a point salad. You've never played a point salad or race game. Race game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I figured there's no escaping it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Hall Games, uh, it looks like partners with Pegasus Spiele to do a lot of their production. So sort of emphasizes that Hall Games is a, a really small shop kind of dedicated to putting out this very specific weight and feel of game. And there's this really natural partnership with Feld. And if you haven't heard of Steffenfeld and some of the games that Jake mentioned, uh, maybe you've heard of some of these others. And I just wanted to read off some past Feld titles. And then maybe as we've done, read a quote or two about from Steffenfeld himself about his own design. So maybe you've heard of Notre Dame, which came out in 2007, or Macau, 2009, The Castles of Burgundy, 
2011, Trajan, another 2011 game, and then Jake mentioned Bruges, which came out in 2013, and Carpe Diem, which came out in 2018. And I think that's like a best of the best summary of all of the Feld games that people kind of hold up, even if they aren't Jake's three favorite. And Jake, as the foremost expert on Feld games, the triumvirate of best Feld. Yeah, it's funny because like normally when we do these uh, game backgrounds, we're like, here are all the other titles by this designer. And I'm like, oh, I haven't played any of them. But like for yeah. once, it's like, oh, I've played like all of these games, except <laughs> for Trajan somehow. That one has escaped me and I really should correct that at some point. Yeah, I I think Feld is a really rewarding designer to explore in this way. And that's one of the most why I'm excited to cover him on the show, just because I think he approaches all of his designs share uh share this sort of perspective but they all feel pretty different when you actually play the games which is one thing that's really cool about them so maybe we can get into these quotes jake i have two one of them is a little bit longer so maybe we can start with this shorter one which is this is from another opinionated gamers interview there uh that site and the reviews there that stretch back almost a decade have become a, a really common resource for me when we're putting together these episodes just because you have lots of designer quotes from them so we've gone back to that well and Feld says I think my style includes that players have real decisions to make on almost every turn the second requirement I have for my games is that they should include at least one innovative mechanism so I think that's really interesting I think that most people would say that about their games uh, but I do think that <laughs> Feld probably has more of a claim to making real decisions on almost every turn. And that word real is one that Jake and I have gone to in the past, even on the show, talking about the difference right between uh, options and action and what are viable decisions. Right. And I think that Feld games are actually really good at having lots of options, but also having those options be viable paths forward throughout the game. And I think Bonfire is really no exception. It's about the player getting to do that almost always. Totally. It's an interesting quote. I think a lot of designers are doing exactly that. This is a game that I guess you could say that's almost like an ethos of the modern board game hobby. It's like if yeah. old like like kind of our legacy elder statesman of the board game hobby. Uh, and I'm not speaking from a place of like tremendous amounts of experience here, but you know, if, if you think about the classics like Risk and Monopoly and what I imagine a lot of like these sort of like old school civiliz- civilization games are like, or what I understand them to be like, are games that have like a lot of kind of slow prodding start, right? Or like set openings. Uh, and then you kind of get into the meat of decisions. And it seems like one of the things that has potentially ushered us into this sort of modern age of board gaming is like, we're doing away with that start, right? We're getting like end media res turn one. You're making interesting choices. Uh, And then also this idea that like games should have a hook, right? What is Mm -hmm. the hook of this new game? I think that is a question as a designer today, you should be able to answer when a publisher like inevitably asks inquires about that. Um, So while I do think that is like, like sort of generic, I think it might be generic in part because of designers like Stefan Feld, who have been putting out these incredible games since, you know, 2007 that are really a lot of sort of what modern, 
you know, and not felt alone, obviously, but, you know, as one of the preeminent Euro game designers of that time period, a lot of the more modern games today are sort of built on the shoulders of this ethos. So if it's fair for anyone to claim, like, my games have, like, interesting decisions, that's my style, <laughs> I think Feld can make a good case for it. I think that you're, you're calling out of the very old classic style games is really interesting, too, because I think that board games for at least some portion of people when they played these sort of historic games that Feld is maybe juxtaposing his games against, it there was a degree of let's experience this thing and watch how it plays out. Mm-hmm. And making a decision wasn't always a part of that. Like roll and move evokes this exact thing. I'm going to roll a die and see what happens. Part of playing a game could have been just experiencing the randomness of what happens in that game. And modern board games are trying to do something really different so maybe there's more more than we're giving it credit for like you said jake that's really interesting do you think we should read this other other quote or just maybe post it on the site i think it's interesting it kind of delves us in let's do it yeah why not let's do it let me read this one the the question was basically how do you go about designing games like the most broad question okay i always think of games of the game's motor first which keeps the game moving like the windrows in macau or the dice in the castles of burgundy This should preferably be something new that hasn't appeared in this form in other games. If it feels right, then other components get added. In doing so, I pay the most attention to making sure that players have a manageable number of options to decide from. Additionally, replay value is very important to me. For that, I make sure to include elements that lead to differences in each game. It is a difficult process that sometimes goes awry. Of course, some element of chance is involved which adds a little luck to the design. I then package the whole thing in overseeable structure because that makes things easier on the players. Finally, fine tuning makes sure that the victory points are distributed in a balanced manner. Okay. So, why did I pick this one? I think I for me, this when I read this quote, you know, I, I was filtering through this longer interview, and when I read this, two main sections jumped out to me. First, this idea of Feld always designs a game's motor. So if you've played something like the Castles of Burgundy, it's really obvious what that game's motor is. You roll some dice, you get input randomness, and then you make a decision based on that. That is the the hook of that game. That's the motor of that game, and it works really well. In Bonfire, what jumps out to you as the motor is the system of action fate tiles. Every player has their own fate fate area, and you know the exact order of tiles that you're going to place. You're going to place these fate tiles over the course of the game, trying to arrange them in a specific way, and it gives you all these actions. And that system, I think when you're learning it, can feel clunky, but once you know the game, can feel really novel and empowering and interesting. And -hmm. I think that Jake and I will talk about that system a lot more going forwards, but I just wanted to, I I just thought it was interesting that this game has such a distinct motor, quote unquote, uh, to quote Feld there, and it's a good one. It it was enough for him to go and then build a game around. And it's an interesting way that someone could go about building a game. And then the other thing that jumped out at me was just the manageable number of options I, I, maybe Jake, we can return to that as we cover Bonfire and talk about if it feels like there's a manageable number of options for the player and how the mechanics enforce that or don't. I think what I heard when I was reading that is in- interesting to me that a designer thinking about a manageable number of options to decide from is designing a decision space, right? Yeah. Like that's what he's talking about there. Um, so that immediately kind of like jumped out at me too as like, okay, this it's cool, right, to be a designer thinking in sort of the terms that we're using a lens on this show to discuss. So Yeah, it, it's kind of amazing how perfectly it maps to the language we often use. Yeah. So yeah. with that in mind, let's do 
we'll run Brendan's pre-recorded rules overview, and then we'll jump straight into a deep dive discussion of Bonfire. Bonfire is a point salad resource management action token driven Euro game by Stefan Feld. While learning Bonfire in its entirety won't be possible here, I hope to give you a good sense for the feel and flow of the game. In Bonfire, each player has a personal player board that depicts a city grid. Throughout the course of the game, they'll play Fate Tiles, depicting three of the game's six action token types into their grid adjacent to a previously placed Fate Tile, then gain action tokens corresponding to the three actions depicted on the tile they placed, and potentially bonus tiles if they match symbols on the Fate Tile they placed with those on a previously placed tile adjacent to it. For example, if you place a tile that depicts a ship and that's next to two other ships, instead of getting just one ship token, you get three. In subsequent turns, players use these action token tiles to take an action, paying this corresponding tile type or two of any tile type instead. With these actions, players may sail ships to islands and collect tasks or guardians, turn a resource wheel in the center of the board called the Great Bonfire, allowing them to collect new action tokens, resources, and portal tiles, build out their city path, creating more opportunities for scoring and leading a procession of guardians, which can gain the player resources or potentially end game points, recruit specialist gnomes, which grant a special ability to the player for the remainder of the game, or elder gnomes, which provide immediate scoring opportunities and more. Many of these actions also cost resources, which come in five types, and the wild gold type that the player will need to carefully manage their supplies of throughout the game, planning an optimal path through the game's wide open decision space. Alternatively, players may also fulfill a task they previously collected or fulfill one of the game's lofty shared tasks, such as having five guardians or seven path tiles. In doing so, players secure points and get to send one of their gnomes to the High Council, allowing them to take a special action and advancing the game towards its end. Once a set number of tasks have been fulfilled, for example, 10 tasks among all players in a three-player game, the end game countdown begins. After each player receives five additional turns, the game ends. Then players receive points for tasks they've completed, guardians that they've moved next to bonfires, portal tiles they've added to their boards, fate tiles remaining, and resources remaining. Then. The player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for that rules overview. With this much complexity, this much onboarding up front, it might be important for people who really want to get the most out of this to pull up some images or, or even parse the rule or check out a playthrough. But I think that gives people some idea of what we'll be talking about in this discussion. I hope so too. And I tried to keep it brief. The most important thing by and far that I want to just reemphasize again is this whole game is about placing those fate tiles to get action tokens and then using those action tokens to do things. That's the, the core of the game. There's other things affixed onto it. There's a, a resource management puzzle that I talked about some, and there's some, there's just so many systems. There's like 12 systems in this game, maybe more. But the real card of it is I'm going to place this tile. I'm going to get things that tell me what I can do. And then I can spend more if I want to go explore a different part of the sandbox than what my tiles tell me I might be able yeah. to. Yeah, it's so it's fascinating, I think, just up front. When you look at this game and you learn the game, it feels, I think, you know, and I think part of this too comes to like the visual presentation of this. Like mm. this game compared to the Castles of Burgundy, I would say is like, more inelegant in presentation right like in the castles of burgundy it's a lot to onboard people to because there's all the different tiles that you kind of have to know up front what they do but i always am like 
and take a look at your player board here, right? Like this might look like kind of nonsense to you now, but as I explain the tiles, like you'll see a very clear logic of what you can do on any given turn. And it's all right here on like a quarter of a piece of paper, yeah. you know, where there's nowhere I can tell someone to look in a game of bonfire and they can get all the relevant and necessary information, right? Like you've got your bonfire tasks, they're spread out everywhere. You've got your individual fate tiles. They're kind of bunched up here, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Things are just kind of indistinct places, which gives it at first blush, I think, a sense of like impenetrability that is heightened by the theme of like, I don't even understand what I'm supposed to be doing here. There's like ancient bonfires and not so ancient bonfires and a really big one that's sort of like shared player agency over there. So all that to say, it's a a complicated game, but like any good Feld game, and I think this is a good Feld game, once you start playing it, it's like, okay, like the I do think the choices are really manageable, right? Like you have just like six actions that you really can do in this game on any given turn. And and understanding those aren't that hard and everything just follows from that. The, the last thing I want to say, just as sort of like preamble to our deep dive discussion, is like I was shocked in playing this game how quickly it plays. Like comparing it to the Castles of Burgundy. I, I think going into this game, my thinking is like the Castle of Burgundy, that's like, you know, a hour to hour and a half affair. This looks like two to two and a half to three hours. And they are much closer in playtime yeah. than you would think. Uh, I played a two player game of this the first time playing it on the table, uh, you know, and, and just in terms of playtime, it was like 60 minutes with like, you know, 15 minute teach on top of that. It's really not as bad as it appears. So I just, I just think that's like, it's just important context to know about this game that I hadn't really gleaned from any sources when I was first interested in exploring this game. I think that part of the onboarding difficulty too, beyond there is an action overview that if someone hands to you, it's sort of, I think, at least for me, it caused this like, oh, this doesn't help me at all. It's confusing me even more. I don't understand the hieroglyphics here. The symbols don't even make sense. Like I can't until I know what this means, there is no way for me to intuit what this little dot means on this red tile. It's red, just, tie, red dot is task, obviously. There you go. Brendan. Because it's clicked for you, and now you know it. So now <laughs> I know it too. And I can look at this weird action hieroglyphics sheet and know mostly what's going on, right? But I think another part of it is that there are a lot of interlocking elements. There's some actions that you only want to do after you've done another action three or four times. And it's a little bit tough to know that if the game rules haven't fully clicked for you. And mm-hmm. then once they have, it just, this is that classic thing, Jake, where this is a heavy game. It's a rules complex game. But once you learn it, you sort of go, oh, this is a this this is light. It's not that complex. And I think there's a degree of truth in that, right? This is one an example of a game that's hard to teach, but not actually... Mm-hmm. that complex in how everything works together. Yeah, it, once it I think I think too like it it does have the game has this circular logic compared to like the castles of burgundy which is a very linear logic, right? I get a tile, it goes here into my supply, then from there it goes onto my board. And yeah. here you're sort of doing things in like whichever order you want. There's like all kinds of different ways you could go about it. You could get a lot of resources and then start trying to collect tasks or vice versa. There's no like clear thing like you have to do this part first. Yeah. Um, and so in, in Teach, it sort of has that difficulty of saying like, you know, a lot of the actions you're telling people like beg the question of like, 
why would I want to do that? And it's like, oh, we'll get to that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and like six minutes later, you're like, remember I said that you could, you know, use the green well, green actions to get paths. It's like, okay, well, that's important for the elders that you can walk along the paths or the whatever they're called. The guardians, uh, yeah. The guardians that can then walk along the paths to collect resources along the way, of course, logically, and so on and so forth. But in practice, and now we're kind of getting into the discussion of decision space a little bit in practice, like when you're playing the game, the choices to you are, I find sufficiently limited by what you can really do that it's pretty clear, like what phase in that circular logic you might be attempting next. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yes. I, I do feel like, so part of what makes this game so compelling. I think let's go back to that find the path versus follow the path thing that we talked about. Okay. So this is the concept that I got from watching the YouTube channel, a game designer's toolkit that looks at video game design and tries to sort of analyze good practices there. There's a really popular series on looking at and examining Zelda dungeons. Zelda, The Legend of Zelda's classic Nintendo franchise. This goes game by game, looking at dungeons, seeing how, how they work. And I think that one of the sort of core ideas that they glean from this is that there's really two types of paths in this game. These follow the path dungeons where there's a prescribed route and your goal as a player is to just follow that route efficiently. And there's also find the path dungeons where the dungeon is much more open uh, and there's many ways that you could navigate the space and the puzzle is navigating the dungeon. It's not finding the right path, it's finding your own optimal path through that space. And I think that I sort of said this at the outset, but what struck me about this, about Bonfire, is you as a player are given a ton of agency over your action tiles. Uh, they're laid out such that you know the order to start. So you can kind of see, you can plan into the future of when certain actions you might want to do more of or less. Because this whole fate tile system is about getting lots of certain types of tokens all at once. And then having that inform what you do, you can always spend more tokens to do an action that you don't have a token for. And when I was learning this game, I really leaned into that system, but it's actually really inefficient to do that. You can't do that too often and get a good score. So all of a sudden the game becomes about looking at your own fate tiles, seeing how those are ordered, looking at the way that objective tiles are ordered out in the shared space where you could collect them from, and literally trying to find a logical path between those two things as you move your ship from island to island collecting objectives, how you're going to be adding more tiles. And I think in a lot of ways, it really is a game about exploring that potential space and finding the most efficient path through it in a way that you don't feel forced like you might in something with a really prescriptive track like Lost Ruins of Arnak's research track. track yeah, great point. I think the term that comes to my mind that fits in with that, um, that I've been thinking about playing this game is it feels like a sandbox. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, find the path sandbox is when, when you're talking about a game that's ultimately about efficiently collecting points mm -hmm. is very similar to me. That is like the distinct flavor that this Feld game is offering compared to a lot of the other ones that I've played that feel much more rigid and structured by like the framework of the game like in castles of burgundy or carpe diem it's like phases right you have mm -hmm. like or it's rounds right you you okay we have five turns each and then we replenish like that's going to direct yeah. everything you do in castle of burgundy and carpe diem in 
similarly, like in Bruges, you have five cards at the start of your turn. Each round is four turns, leaving you with one leftover card. You know, that's going to really cause you to like parse out these little micro sequence of plays where this is not a punctuated waning decision space game like those. It's just one big sort of waning decision space in terms of the uh, main board of all the quests you're getting, right? They, they never replenish, right? Everything yep. is just once it's taken by someone, it's gone. The same with the type of shared goal tasks that everyone is trying to accomplish like once taken they're gone so you just have one large structure that you sort of play with the whole time uh and i think that gives it like a very distinct feeling from the rest of the the games but it doesn't feel like incredibly tight like some others as well because like there's you're never going to there's always going to be stuff left over you know things don't ever wane down to zero in this game unless you're Brendan playing the worst game of bonfire that's ever been played by anyone <laughs> where you ran out of actions entirely leaving it just to, to me to play solo for like the last six turns of the game and I think that the, that does speak to I have gotten better since then so I was exploring the decision space you're probably not the only one who's ever done that but I did not know that was possible I don't think so and I think that it's really interesting that you can sort of push up on the edges of this game and and you can have edge cases like that where the game will let you overspend if you want to take whatever action feels the best in that situation, even if it's really efficient and kind of push on that pedal, push on the pedal and then not have anything more you can do. You also get points for the action tiles you have left at the end of the game, three points for each. Um, So it rewards efficient placing and efficient use of those tiles in a really interesting way. Uh, But I love games. I'm not going to believe at this point because we've said it so many times, but I love games that let you do something you couldn't normally do for a small added cost, like the pine cones in Cascadia, that extra agency token that comes with it. And felt is just sort of like, sure, if you want to do something and pay double the t- tiles that you would normally have to, go ahead, but it better be worth it. And that that's a much more interesting co- like bit of structure of is it worth it for the player to answer than just, oh, I can't do this because I don't have the tiles. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of trust of the player in this game to navigate that open space and it mostly works because i feel like the sense of direction that you get when you place tiles and you get those action tiles it does give you a sense of okay i got a bunch of ships i guess my signpost is i'm going to try to sail around a bunch um so what what should i be doing with sailing should i be collecting guardians should i be getting more tasks if i'm getting more guardians how does that inform my ability to get tasks everything is interlinked pretty in a pretty interesting way where if the space you're exploring is this sort of web there's all different paths that you can jump in and explore throughout and i think once you learn the game that's what becomes fun and then everything's randomly laid out so every game of this is always different which is also yeah yeah totally do you have more to say on the finding a path or should we kind of get into break down a little bit more of like some of the characterizing of the decision space that we normally do. I think that we've almost entirely covered what I want to cover with that sort of that idea. But I guess one thing that I want to just really quickly say is from a decision space perspective, I have found that starting this game, my first decision can feel really impactful because it feels like I'm not even the very first decision, but it feels like the game asks you before you even start playing to think about what that path might be. Uh, and try to execute on it and other people are going to get in the way uh maybe the 
your plans won't always go exactly as you expect, determining depending on what objectives people pick up and that sort of thing. But there's not a ton of games where I just sort of like to sit and look at the board, look at my fate tiles and try to imagine how I might navigate it as much as this. Like I could sit there for 10 minutes before we play, I think, and sort of try to think of a way to play. And that's it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think what's really driving that the most is the motor of the fate tile yeah. and the little puzzle of that being, you know, I don't know how much you get into this in the rules overview, but you, once you see your layout of fate tiles, like that is stuck there. Right. Yeah. And I think there are seven of them ish to start the game with. And you're always taking from either the top or bottom. So it's not really that much to, to start thinking through like, okay, probably my first three or four fate tile selections look like this because that is creating a pattern that creates a lot of overlapping tiles so that I get way more actions, which is huge for being efficient in this game. And if you're thinking through three or four of those fate tile placements, like you're thinking through like 60 to 75% of the game. The game, yeah. Which, okay, so I'm really glad you brought that up, Jake, because we talked about how a lot of other Feld games have this sort of more rigid structure. So a lot, sometimes that takes the form of input, input randomness, like the Castle of Burgundy or like Bruges, that force the player into a smaller decision space. And I think the fate tiles are really interesting because they are randomized. Everyone has the same set of tiles, but at the start you randomize them and then they're set so you can look ahead like you're saying. And then beyond that, there's no real Feld style input randomness to this game. And all of the inputs are known. So I guess I just want to say, I think that that makes for this really interesting compromise between a rigid prescribed game flow and a completely random, I don't know what's going to happen to have this, all of this part of the game, we're going to randomize it at the start, but then you know what's going to happen. And we felt also did that in uh, Year of the Dragon, another game that Jake and I are playing a little bit of now. But I, I really like that flavor of randomness where it's variable, but it's not clouding my ability to plan. It's actually empowering me to plan. It's cool. Yeah. I think this kind of gets into like the clarity of the decision space the most, everything we're really talking about right now. But like when you sit down and look at this game the first time, the 10th time, it's incredibly unclear, I think, at the start what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. But it feels like this game is like there are signposts everywhere, right? Everybody starts on an exact same page, but as soon as you place your first fate tile on your board, like you're already valuing things differently just by virtue of like, okay, I can't, I don't have any ship actions available to me. So that's going to be less efficient and less valuable for me to like use a ship action right at the start. But everything you do in this game, like it sets you down a path that is just like creating more and more diversification of like, player situation regardless of what you do right so if your first action is to move the bonfire to take i don't know what they're called like a portal one of the thing one of the uh shared quests that everybody's trying to do is like fill up their whole outside of their board with these portals so like as soon as you do that once like it is already like more valuable to you than the next person to like get the second portal to like start going down that path you might take a card which are just uh all give you some sort of special benefit that's going to make you evaluate all your actions differently right like i got the card that gives me double the resources when i move the brown 
uh, guardian around my board. So like I should go try and, and collect the brown guardian now. You mm -hmm. know, um, you know, as soon as you get a quest, which is the biggest part of the game in my estimation, like of course that is then it's like okay, the, this quest is telling me that I need to somehow collect seven ship or five ship action tiles before the end of the game like that all of a sudden it's like a big goal because the the bonfire quests come in three flavors easy to achieve medium and difficult like taking a difficult to achieve one early on that might be a good strategy for new players because then like all of a sudden from a completely open framework, I've just given myself like a very rigid framework and task to try to achieve. And then this continues on too, Jake, in other places in the game. Like when you take the path tiles, those all have a color associated with them. They're either the blue, yellow, or red. If you So if you add a path tile, oh, maybe I need to now go get a red objective to match with my red path tile. Sort of this game, I'm glad that you brought up signposts because the game, the whole game, every point that you touch is a signpost pointing towards four other things that you could be doing. So it's sort of like if you're finding the path, you go to this signpost, you see where it points and you follow that to a different one. And it is really sort of once you learn it, it feels beginner friendly in that way. Knowing the right. right thing to do, though, to me, I'm really curious to hear where you fall on this, Jake, because even I've probably played this game a little maybe over 10 times now and it's still very opaque to me. Of yeah. What the best thing to do is, is not clear to me at any given point. And it's impossible to calculate even sort of the value of an action it feels like yeah no that's a great point i think i think it is very opaque right overall this is not a game where i would say like there are any clear heuristics that i've come up with at this point of be like okay well you should be doing this at this phase in the game or it's like best to be collecting guardians early or, or anything right i don't yeah. know um but i will say by the end of the game it's clear within that play to me mm. what i should be doing so i would say you know we normally talk about like sort of the shape of decision space and this fits in with that but it's like it's a game where the clarity of the decision space has like a really dynamic shape from mm. impossibly opaque to clear within that play you know yeah. and I, that doesn't say whether like anything i did over the course of that play was right or wrong but like based on the context, based on the signposts and the incentives I've created for myself by the last, you know, third of the game, right? Kind of in that arc, like it's clear what I need to be trying to accomplish now. It's like, okay, I have the, maybe it wasn't right to get this goal, this objective uh, bonfire thing, but I have it now and I'm going to try to achieve it because that'll give me a bonus action and, and this many points. I think that as you know, last week we talked about waning decision space games with Jamie, and I think there was this discussion around that of, oh, are all games waning decision space games because of this exact thing that we're talking about right now? And I, I don't think they are, but I think that what I'm realizing as we're talking about this is just like with any journey, right? Playing a game, if we're going to use this metaphor of signposts and navigating through a space, the further you are from your destination, the more ways you can get there. So you have more options. The route you can take can vary more than the closer you are, the fewer ways you can get to your destination. So I think it's only natural that in a game, no matter what shape its decision space is, waxing or waning or static or dynamic, the closer you get to the end, the fewer options you have to getting there just by nature of you being closer to the end and the momentum of the decisions you've made. But I 
do agree that the great thing about it in this game in Bonfire is all of a sudden the actions that I felt I couldn't tell exactly what value I was going to get. By the end of the game, I know if I do this, I will get seven points. And I can turn those seven points into this. And it feels so rewarding and refreshing to just have the clarity of, I know that this is the right move in this spot. It's like the whole game is a payoff to that. The other heuristic is, of course, use the action tiles you have to do the things that they say that they That's do. a good one. That's yeah. the heuristic, right? Like just because you can spend two of anything to do anything doesn't mean you should send spend six tiles that aren't ship tiles to sail three spaces away because you can. Like, no, don't be <laughs> right. doing that. Yeah. that. That is not worth it. Yeah. But the game lets you. That's a good point. Um, a lot of the skill in this game and a lot of skill in like finding the path to use the terminology that we've been talking about is in setting yourself in a position that you will be able to profitably use the action tiles you have to do something that advances your cause in the game. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of times in Bonfire, I find myself through, you know, my own fault, the own mistakes I made in a situation where it's like, I need to sail, but all I have is this thing that lets me move the great bonfire one space to the left. And it is not helpful to get me anything I want, you know? So I I think like being able to think ahead. Yes, you can like strategize a lot, but also being able to think ahead in the short term to be like, okay, well, if I do this, is that going to like hang me out to dry three Mm -hmm. turns from now? Like that feels it's like something that is foreseeable, but for whatever reason is challenging for me. I also, I think one part of the game for me that fills into that Jake perfectly is the selection of tiles and the sailing puzzle. So I didn't talk about this puzzle very much in the rules overview just because it was too much, but there's lots of islands out in front of you. And essentially it always costs one ship token to sail one island away two to go two islands. And for three, you can go anywhere on the board. So whenever you have, One thing I really like about this mechanism from a decisions perspective is that it makes every decision that you make of even if you know that you really want this objective right on the island next to you, you have to take into account everything you could do from that point, which maybe the closer objective is better right now, but the other direction is better overall for the arc that you see going forward. And that makes for a really organic, uh, tough juxtaposed decision that you could never evaluate that it just happens because the game system and i think that that to me becomes the most fun decisions of should i go get this objective because i already could fulfill it or should i go in this direction because if i go there i can then go to the island two steps away and get this objective that's really good that i know jake also wants and i'm going to block him from it and that sort of thing yeah and i think the system also allows for like really creative plays too where you have the system we talked about with the fate tiles, but also anytime you complete a task, you get like a one-time superpower. And that power could be like sail anywhere on the map for free and take a shipping action. But each of those you select, you can only do once. So like the next time you complete a task, that option you took won't be available to you. Um, And I think like it, it allows for these like, like you inevitably fall into these like difficult situations where like, I can't do what I want. Uh, But there, the game is also flexible enough that like a lot of times like some creative thinking allows you to get to a solution that isn't everything you want, but it's like a lot better than total disaster, right? Where in a lot of more restrictive Feld games, like you can't, it's too, it's too rigid. 
It's yeah. like, oh, sorry, you have a one, but you need to have a four die. Best I could do is like two workers. Maybe that'll help you in the future. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think that, you know, we've been talking about planning a lot. And to for planning to feel meaningful in a game, you have to plan towards something. And in Bonfire, you're planning towards these explosive turns where sometimes, like Jake said, you fulfill this goal, you send your gnome off, you do a special ability, and then you use that special ability to fulfill another goal. So then you have this like really... You can't then do it again, but you have what feels like this massive turn where maybe you place a face fate tile. You've arranged them such that you're going to get eight new tiles on your turn or nine or 10 even somehow. Uh, Then you fulfill a task that lets you do this other thing. So I think you have these slow plotting turns followed by these bombastic moments that feel really rewarding. And to me, that's some of the best of Feld is he allows his games to let players build towards big moments and then really experience those payoffs of those big moments, whether it's having the big turns with the special actions and bonfire or like in Castles of Burgundy, finishing a a big space early on and getting this huge gush of points. I think that this he's really good at what we've talked about in the past, Jake, of leaving quote unquote room for bingo moments in in your games that are this rush of endorphins. And they're here. They're great. So I think it's safe to say that we feel like the size of the decision space in this game is pretty big. Yeah. It feels like on the bigger end of Feld's games, um, just because of the flexibility that the system allows for you, even if the heuristics of like trying to do the limitation is strong, it it's not as it's not it doesn't have the, like the rigid edges of like okay you can literally only do X or Y with this. Does that make sense? No, definitely it does. And then on top of that, because of the variability in the setup, every game. One, you might be able to do different things. If you get a specialist early on, you might just have strictly a strictly different way that you can approach it. But then it's, for me, it feels so skill testing and then also so open in that sense. Like the strategic paths that you can take all do feel mostly balanced. Maybe I'm going to go really big on tasks this game, or maybe I'm going to build up a huge path and have a procession. I've gone with the strategy that Jake mentioned of filling in portals, and I just want to get all of my guardians next to my bonfires. That playing the game that way feels so different than the way I pretend to want to play it, which is get objectives, match those objective colors to path tiles, flip those over, take a special action, right? And both of them are fun. They're good. They're interesting. And it does feel way more variable than a lot of games that we've covered. And I think that makes it feel much bigger. It's like the strategic diversity here is pretty huge. Yeah. It's interesting the way we're having this conversation is like so fluid and we're just bouncing mm-hmm. around. And I think it's like follows you know, the, the, the shape structure of the, the shape of the game in a way that yeah. like a more linear game is a lot easier to be like, okay, let's talk about this mechanism and this decision point and then this yeah. one. And here it's like, how, how can you even do that? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. We're doing the exact thing we talked about. Like the reason it's hard to have a coherent conversation about this game is the same reason it's hard to coherently teach it. Like everything yeah. just leads to some other point. But let's ask like, since we haven't yet, like what is the decision space type to you? Hmm. I think it is a waning decision space. Ultimately, uh, there's there's small little elements that could feel waxing. I think like the specialist tiles enabling you to do more things a little bit push in that direction. But you're already it, it's really a a game of famine, not a game of feast. You never have enough of anything that you really want, and you get rewarded for having things left over. So you're sort of pushed to to do the most. I, I think to act. Disc- 
discreetly enough and to like not waste in a way that the options wane down. Literally the game ends when 10 objectives have been selected. So that end trigger is also sort of a waning towards the end game as I think it might send. be variable. It varies by player count. Yeah. Sorry, that's the three player ending. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. There's different tiers. Um, but yeah, all the islands, like you mentioned, Jake, the objectives get taken. I don't know. It feels waning. And even if your action tiles push back up uh, whenever you place a new fate tile, even within each little uh, section of placing a fate tile, getting your tiles, taking your actions, then placing a new one, it feels like a waning decision space a little bit as a microcosm of the game over it stacked on top of each other. What do you think? Does it feel what? static to you no definitely not static i I might go dynamic just because and i think what you have to do when answering this question is think about like what is giving the decision space shape is it more that like options are getting taken away from you which is what's happening with the uh bonfire quests that are Mm laid out across the board and the availability of shared objectives um or is it more the fate tiles which i think the fate tiles leads to a dynamic decision space because the first time you play one down you get just those three and the second time you're you're likely going to get you're going to be creating um a pattern that has at least some shared overlap i think in almost all cases so then you're getting more actions to work with which does give you greater flexibility on your turn because of the flexibility provided by the action system at some point in the game you'll probably be placing an action or a fate tile to get way more action squares than that but then later in the game or at like you know you could get to a point in the game where the third one you place gets you six action tiles and the fourth one gives you four you know so it it kind of goes up and down there um just pending sort of the path you choose to take uh and different people will have different amounts of sort of agency and decision making at different points in the game too which also feels dynamic so i I would say for me i kind of lean more in the latter there that's like the action fate tiles that are creating the space and the former to me feels like that conversation that we were having and can will continue to have about yeah, every game is a waning game because you have limited amount of time and that the resource of time is always diminishing in every single game. I think also uh, you've convinced me and I think part of the reason why you have is that what matters isn't that there are, you can find a waning element in most games, which we've said. Yeah. But what matters is is that in sort of shaping all of the decisions that you're making. And in this game, the answer is no. There's always enough left over everywhere to have that not really that scarcity be forcing you down a specific path, right? There's always some objective still out on the board based on how the the rules of the game are structured. There's always still shared objectives that you could achieve. There's almost by the end of the game, always still elders that are going to give you end game scoring points. Not always, but almost always. So there's enough left that there's still options. So I think dynamic is right. Even if it's just because of that, uh, ballooning and shrinking down over and over again of your fate tiles, which, as Feld said himself, is the heart or motor of this game. Yeah, and also interestingly, I think in this game is sometimes like when your plan is working, you'll have like you're you're playing efficiently, like the the path that you've found is clicking. You'll have the most like resources to work with 
but yeah. your decisions, like your subjective decision space is actually smallest. You're just following that path, right? Yeah. As you had planned it out. Whereas like if somebody takes away the task that you were wanting, it doesn't actually shrink your decision space. It might balloon it because now you're like, okay, well now I have these three ship tiles that I could do anything with. Yeah, this might actually, it's funny that I said waiting at first because this might be one of the most the best examples of a dynamic decision space we've covered on the show in a long time. And I feel like with Felds, oftentimes we kind of end back up at this discussing this because they have that sort of openness. Maybe Jake, we can pivot to talking about, I would love to just each talk about some things we enjoy, whether it's decisions we like, mechanisms we enjoy, or things that stand out about Bonfire. So I feel like that's probably the best way to put a cap on the conversation. Okay, that sounds good. Maybe we can take turns going back and forth, but do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I okay. think I think one thing that I found fun is in this game is is the sandbox, right? Is the fact that like you start out on the same page as everybody else and then you are like sort of drastically going off in different directions. And I think like the gnome cards you can get mm. have been really interesting for me to explore because basically these you have like they come in two flavors. One gives you personal player powers. The other gives you bonus points um, at the end of the game based the, on a criteria. Not at the yeah. end of the game, right when you achieve them, which is really weird and different than how it works in almost all other games. Oh, the Elder Tiles we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, yeah. So anyway, I, I like that because I think it has been really interesting for me to explore like when is that worth it it's been fun to sort of like it makes obviously if you're getting a personal player power you want to do that as early as you can in the game um and then like they all sort of enable you to shape your strategy in a unique and different way um because the the powers they give you are are really off the wall um a lot of times and and allow you to like break rules in interesting ways. So this is not like novel stuff, but I think the way it works inside of this like giant sandbox Euro game uh, gives you like, gives me just like a ton to chew on. And when you talk about like a game giving like replayability and variability, I think starting your game with a different one of these like creates just a drastically different shape. So the elder tiles too, which yeah, getting them immediately when you take them creates that interesting game of chicken, which it's not the most interactive game. We're only interacting when we're taking away the opportunity to take something from someone else or incidentally through moving the bonfire. Maybe you'll move it to somewhere that someone else doesn't want you to. So it doesn't feel very interactive. But I think, I don't know, just that is one instance where the interaction is amped up and you really do have to look at what other people are wanting to do. I think my one of my favorite things about this game, Jake, is when you fulfill an objective whether it's one of the common tasks or your own and then you just get to take that powerful decision of you can do this crazy thing or you can do this wild thing or you can do this other really powerful action trying to figure out what the most optimal move is at those points is very fun and i in person it could be very ap inducing because you have this static solvable puzzle it almost feels like um but I find those turns to be just awesome and rewarding, just sitting there trying to puzzle out what I really should be doing and what that will lead to. It's this rush of huge decision space, just massive. You could do almost anything in the entire game and then sort of trying to figure out what you should do compared to sometimes in this game. A very dynamic turn. Yeah, very dynamic. <laughs> Whereas other times you you don't, your turn is just placing a fate tile and sure, there's 
a little bit around where you're going to place it. But usually, like Jake said, you've already kind of planned out. So those turns don't feel as meaningful in terms of the decisions. You've already made the decisions that have impacted what you'll do. Mm -hmm. But I will say I like those turns too. This is my second thing that I like. Then Jake will snake it back to you. When you place a fate tile and you get like eight, nine tiles. Oh, it feels great. Yeah. Another jackpot moment. It's for sure a jackpot moment. It's interesting because like, I don't know. Another thing I haven't figured out about this game is like, it, I, I have not played with the fate tiles in the way that I like. Okay, let me start over. There are some of the tasks in this game that you can get have to do with your like this shape that you literally create with your fate tiles. So like completely filling out the middle rectangle of your player board or like filling out the further edges of your whole player board. And I haven't played with that at all, which is mm. which is something I want to do. It's like, you know, just another example of like a totally different type of experience you could have with this game it seems like it'd be really hard because like so much of this game is about like efficiently using tiles so to be like making sacrifices in the placement of your action tiles in order to place them you know like making adjacency sacrifices for like overall shape sacrifices like that seems like really tough but i you know i think that's something i like about this game even though i've played it a dozen a dozen times I feel like I've got a dozen more plays in this game of just trying out like completely new stuff that I haven't explored before. And that does feel different from the Feld games that I really love, like Castles of Burgundy, Carpe Diem, Bruise. These are great games, but and and they have high highs and and low highs, but like and low lows, high highs and low highs and and and. (laughs) Well, and, they're Feld games, of course. And high lows low and low lows, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but not in terms of like how differently they play out, if that makes sense. Yeah, when you play Castles of Burgundy, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. And you're saying when you play Vonfire, you don't always know what shape the fire is going to take. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Also, I have attempted some of those highlight all the spaces of your fate area tile things. They're, they're also just easy to mess up. Because yeah. you're doing a spatial tile game, but you you kind of have to plan in such a way that it works. It's a weird thing to sort of tile a sh- grid with one by three tiles. It's just not something I have a lot of experience doing. So I tried it once, I messed it up, and I was like, oh, it would be way easier for me to just get a similar task that says have five bonfires and get seven points than for me to tile a specific part of my board. So I'll ignore those other tasks. Yeah, um, or compare it to the ones that are like, have a certain number of same tile right like yeah the ship one or yeah like some of them reward you for like doing a good job of the adjacency puzzle right like okay you want to have three purples together and three whites together on your board somewhere to achieve this that that feels like intuitively good because it's like i'm getting the bonus for doing well at the adjacency puzzle and i'm getting this extra task versus the opposite and there are slight differences in points as well so maybe the game is like just don't take that unless like you have the specific layout of your fate tiles so that you can sort of achieve it and do well with the adjacency puzzle but i I don't know i mean it's possible that it's not balanced i'm not like ready to to declare that yet but it just it seems like there are more intuitive paths you can take and less intuitive paths. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, what's your next fun thing, Jake? I don't know. So I think like it's, I'm going to be like buzzkill guy because I think like this is my the reason this game doesn't rise higher to me okay. is like 
I think this game works well. I think it is a very fascinating and interesting puzzle that plays shockingly quickly for what it is. But like for me, it doesn't have the same level of like highlight turns or things that like mm. other uh, Feld games have for me. Like I, I think that's my overarching criticism with this game is like I'm just not sure that anything that I'm doing is that fun mm. <laughs> which is pretty big you know what I mean like and and I think that is sort of drawn out by this question where it's like what's your favorite thing about like these other games I think I could really quickly like rattle off four or five but I think be, and I think it has to do with like how much flexibility is in the system that like all of the different like actions in the game and paths you can sort of go down in the game. They they don't feel even though like you are doing different things, like the actual play of operationalizing those things um feels like similar, right? If if it doesn't it doesn't give me the same kind of like emotional excitement. And I think it's because of the generousness and because of like sort of the looseness of the system that like when I accomplish something in a creative way that this game allows, unlike some of those other games, like I feel good, but I don't feel like accomplished. I think for me, another aspect of that too, Jake, is because of the opacity of the decisions in the first, you know, two thirds of the game, I might take a turn where I do something really well. And not even really realize it, right? My yes. feedback, negative feedback, and my positive feedback is pretty blunted in this game. So I think when you're saying it's lacking the fun factor, it's because you're never going to, you know, roll the perfect dice and then slot exactly. them in. Exactly. Like in Castles yeah. of Burgundy. And even though you do have those bombastic turns, you might have a bombastic turn in the first third of the game that feels great, but your bombastic turn in the final third of the game might feel equally great and be about the same. So even if your game builds to these big moments, the arc overall just feels a little flat because you're exploring the sandbox space. So you've sacrificed these high arcs that you can get by find the path games that lead you towards, sorry, follow the path games that lead you towards this one specific high high, like in you know the Lost Ruins of Arnak when you get to the top of the research temple and you're getting these bonuses and the game artificially has created that exciting moment for you getting to the end of the track versus here where it's really open, those artificial moments don't exist for you to reach as a destination. So yeah, the game is just the sum of its parts ultimately and they're all fun parts, but it misses the at being something more. And maybe just it's because there's too much. Like for me, it's not that it's unmanageable. I can play Bonfire. I enjoy it. But I don't feel I can go beyond or or maybe I don't feel I want to go beyond and sort of unpack the next layer of this game because it's just too much work. I'd just rather play a different Feld game that is equally open. Like I want to go play the Year of the, Drag- uh, Year of the Dragon now more so than I want to play more Bonfire at this point. So do you you so you're not interested in Bonfire Trees and Creatures expansion bringing all kinds of new stuff into the system. If you had it and we were together and you said Brendan do you want to play this? I was like absolutely, but I'm yeah. not interested enough that I'm even if I was at a con, right? And I I wouldn't say, "Oh, do they have the expansion for Bonfire and Bonfire and can we play them?" I I'm going to play something else. But yeah, if you roll up, that's play. I think I'm a little higher than you then because I think I am 
like would definitely be interested in seeking out and just trying that it just i mean that's just like felled completionism <laughs> of like but it, it there's something to me like or or maybe it's being like won over by the theme but it's just like what insane stuff are they going to add to this now that's interesting to me but i think to your point too about non uh, not enough feedback i think that might be that's something i agree with and i think like maybe that's what we're missing to some extent is like a lack of input randomness yeah that you have in all these other felt games that i love just a bit more because i think oftentimes like those are moments of key feedback where it's like did i make the right choice or not based on this like new slate of information and without any new information getting added in outside of like very very like small yeah like you flip over more elder cards as the game goes on but not, nothing like here's the flop like did it yeah. did your strategy pay off or not and you get that in all these other games in here you just don't yeah and in in this one the flop happens once at the beginning that's your input randomness that you can completely plan around so it doesn't really feel that way and i guess that's the cost of building the quote motor in that way and interestingly this motor might just not quite have the fun factor which yeah yeah, it's, it's that's a, different, a taste thing too. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's a different kind of motor. And I think a lot of people like don't like that sort of punctuated waning decision space that we have in Castles of Burgundy or Azul, right? It feels too tense. It feels too stressful. Like, oh no, like the tile I needed like didn't show up and so I lose. And where it's like, I find that like thrilling. Um, like here- you know, I, I might point them towards this game to, you know, if, if I met somebody who wanted to try a Feld game and I knew they didn't like Azul, then I wouldn't, you know, this might be one that I would point them to sure. to, to give them like the more of that type of like exploration uh, and, and shape, right? That's all on you <laughs> to check out. Do you out. think, Jake, if one thing that I'm reminded of from Bruges is you can do some pretty busted things with the specialist card powers that feel kind of like you, you're game breaking. That's the the powers in that game feel game breaking if you use them effectively. Well, there's and one that's broken that we one had the house yeah. roll out. Yeah, but yeah. I'm not talking about that one specifically. Okay, okay. Some other ones. Yeah, yeah. Like I think still it's about pulling together interesting synergies in Bruges between yeah. some of those effects, right? And yes. I think here with the specialist gnomes, that system maybe doesn't have the room to sort of achieve that same fun factor. So they they feel good and they're fun. But you don't get the high high that you're talking about. Do you think that would change the fun factor for you or it's just too small of a footprint? No, I think that I think like that does exist here. And that's like I think that immediately I drew that like I like this system in the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it does allow you to do that and you can create some combos. But I think they're it's cost prohibitive. Right. Like in Bruges, the game is playing people into houses and build this tableau. Here, if you've built three of the uh, specialist gnome cards, like that's three actions you didn't take. That yeah, exactly, and that's like very expensive, right? You're spending yeah. a lot of action tiles to get those, and you're spending a lot of the resources that you need to pick up uh, other tasks and w- whatever, right? And, and and oftentimes like complete those tasks. So it, it feels like the opportunity cost of doing that in this game is sufficiently high that a lot of times it just doesn't feel worth it to me to like go heavy specialist strategy um more than just like okay i've got a couple and now i need to like hammer those 
actions that I've increased the value of to make sure I get the value out of them that I've put into it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I hope, and I think we have done a really good job of sort of explaining the decision space that Bonfire offers and juxtaposing it with some of the, why it feels different and why it feels notable as a design, even if it's maybe not Jake's favorite Feld game, it doesn't create a fourth pillar of Felds for him and is a game that I enjoy, but not a game that I want to keep returning to. It's a really fun, open, free decision space, but there's a lot of costs and the highs might not quite be what you want when you put in all the effort of onboarding. Yeah. And I will just conclude by saying like, I don't want to come overly come across overly critical. I think, um, Steppenfeld is probably my clear favorite designer just based on aggregate ratings of games. And I think this might be my fourth favorite one, uh, Mm. which makes it probably like a, yeah, like a top 25, top 30 game for me. I would highly recommend people check it out. I think definitely there's a cohort of people who would find this to be their favorite Feld game. Um, I'm interested in the expansion. I think it's like, you know, just this close from being like a top 10 game for me that I need to have in my collection. I thought it was going to get there at certain points in playing this game. And just where I'm at right now, it's, it feels like it's just missing something for me that makes keeps it from being like a 10 out of 10. Um, but yeah, check it out. Like, don't 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 let me say like I have fun playing it, even if it, it feel it's you know it's just tough to say. It's like I have a lot of fun, but it might be missing the fun factor that some of the other games have. Totally. Well, we'll have to decide what Feld we want to return to next, Jake. Whether it's Macau or In the Year of the Dragon or maybe something else entirely on the show. But I playing Bonfire made me want to keep playing more Feld games. They're so different than a lot of the games that we typically cover on the show, and yeah. though arguably maybe not all that different than the game we're covering next week which is called Point Salad, a small box card game from AEG. Wait, is that not a Feld game? (laughs) In in this instance, no. Um, And I will say the rules complexity, pretty low in this one compared to a lot of Feld games. But obviously, it's called Point Salad, named after one could say um, a phrase that I think wouldn't exist without Feld games, maybe. I think that brings us to the end of a very rambling episode, as which is truly the only type of episode that we could make about this game. I do want to say just before we close out, if any of you have been listening to the show for a while, finding some value in it, the best thing that you could do, the number one best thing you could do to support our show is leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I think they all accept reviews and we would be incredibly grateful to have them it's been a little while since we've got a review so uh please do excuse this quick appeal uh for additional reviews of the podcast and if you'd like to find more decision space you can find us on decisionspacepodcast.com you can also find our blog on board game geek if you just google board game geek decision space it will pop up that's a great place to interact with us tell us your thoughts on this episode and any others that we've made and you can also find a link to our discord Discord is like a chat room in your browser or on your phone in the show notes where there's a whole community of people who like discussing games and talking about decisions in them. And we'd love to have you in there as well. So until next week with Point Salad, I hope you have a good one. And Jake, thanks for this awesome discussion. Yeah. And thanks to Hembry for our intro and outro music. Reach out. We'll see you next week. Close to now.